if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law, and if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law, you then, who teach another, don't you teach yourself? You who preach you must not steal, do you steal? You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who detest idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for being here with us. Lord Jesus, you said where two or three are gathered in your name, there you are among us. Just incredible. God, that we can come here together as the church, the, the body and bride of Christ, and we can worship you in spirit and in truth, and you're with us, God. We thank you for that. We thank you for the scriptures, that you speak to us through them. And God, I pray that this morning you would, you would speak to us clearly. God, you're always clear, but sometimes we're foggy and we're tired and we're distracted and we're hard-hearted. And so, God, I pray you'd work on our hearts this morning. God, you'd teach each person here this morning what, what they need to be taught by your word, through your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In a formal debate, both sides get to state their position and make a case for it. And then both sides get multiple opportunities, depending on the format of the debate, for rebuttal. Rebuttal means to contradict or oppose by formal legal argument, plea, or countervailing proof. My guess is you guys probably don't use the word rebuttal often in your day-to-day -day conversation, but you do it all the time all the time in your interactions with people. You are disagreeing with them by offering countervailing proofs. I'll give you an example here. I know that there are some people in our church that would make the claim that the New England Patriots are the greatest NFL franchise team of all time. And of course, they would point to the Bill Belichick, Tom Brady era where they won six Super Bowls from 2001 to 2018, and there's a strong case to be made for that. But I might offer some countervailing proofs to that argument. I would say they are a great team, but they're not number one. That position, the greatest franchise team in NFL history, belongs, you guessed it, to the Green Bay Packers, of course, obviously. Now, why are the Packers a better overall franchise than the Patriots and every other team? Uh, well, the Packers have 13 total league championships. That's seven more than the Patriots. That's the most of any team in NFL history. They have 792 wins. That's 253 more than the Patriots and the most of any team in NFL history. They have 29,642 points scored in franchise history. That's over 7,600 more than the Patriots and the most of any team in NFL history. 
Now that is an example of a slam dunk rebuttal. That's what that is. And obviously that's a silly example that really doesn't matter at all. It has absolutely no consequences in the real world. But in Romans chapter 2, Paul is interacting with and making his own rebuttal. He's responding to disagreements. He's anticipating the audience of this letter making. And the difference between our example and Paul's rebuttal is that the stakes are very high. Paul is talking about the difference between life and death, the difference between heaven and hell. What is Paul's main argument up to this point? His main argument is that the wrath of God is aimed at people because of their unrighteousness. This is Romans chapter 1. He says they don't glorify God, they're not grateful to God, they don't worship God, they don't obey God. They know he exists, they know of his power, they know of his goodness and his righteousness, and they reject him. They worship and serve created things rather than the creator. Because of this, their thinking becomes debased and they're off the rails. They're doing all kinds of wicked things and they're not only doing them, they're celebrating them. They're unrighteous. So the wrath of God is aimed at people. People then need to be saved by God from his wrath through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus. This is what he says. This is the good news of the gospel, that salvation is available and everyone needs it. And then he shifts in the beginning of Romans chapter 2, and he says to the people who are reading his letter, he says, you're in the same boat. We're talking about these heathens out here in the world. But you guys are all in the exact same position. God's wrath is aimed at you apart from Christ. God's standard of judgment is the same for everyone. This is why he says, don't judge. Don't judge other people. Worry about your own judgment because you have not met God's standard. That's the main point Paul has made so far. And in last week and this week's text, Paul is anticipating and responding to the rebuttals to this argument. What are they? Remember, he's, he's writing this letter to a church in Rome. This is a mixed church, ethnically. So many of them are Gentiles, which means just that they're non-Jewish. Certainly some of them are native Romans, but Rome was a very eclectic city. There would have been all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of cultural backgrounds represented. So partially Gentile, but there were some Jews, ethnic Jews, who'd converted to Christ in his audience. And they have different rebuttals. The Gentiles, their rebuttal was this. How could God find us guilty of breaking a law we didn't even know about? How's that possible? I mean, we didn't even have the law. We didn't know it existed for millennia. How could it be just and fair for God to hold us to a standard we did not even know about? Jake Bennett took us through this last week in the verses preceding this section. And basically, the way Paul responds to this rebuttal is that the law, you actually did have it. You actually did have the law because God wrote the law on your heart. God has given human beings a conscience. That's part of what it means to be made in the image of God. You know what's right. You know what's wrong. And so you have no excuse for breaking God's law. The Jews would have had a different rebuttal. Paul knows this. Paul anticipates this. What was the Jews' rebuttal? Well, they would have said something like this. How could God find us guilty when we are his chosen people? 
We've been keeping the law for millennia. We make the sacrifices. We make the pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem. We practice the rituals. We say our prayers. We sing the psalms. We observe all of the little details of the Sabbath. How can God find fault with us? How does Paul respond? That's what this section is all about this morning. How does he respond? Now, if you've been reading ahead in Romans, or if you've read Romans before, or if you have any background in Christianity, you, you've read the New Testament, then you know that, that what Paul could have said, he could have just simply said, no, you haven't. <laughs> you think you've kept the law? Wrong. Try again. You haven't kept the law. Nobody's kept the law. And in fact, this is where he goes in chapter 3. He says there's no one righteous. There's not one single person who's ever lived who's kept the whole law who's met God's standard. He could have just said that, but he doesn't do that. He gets much more precise. And he begins by laying out the Jewish identity. So this is where he's going. He lays out the Jewish identity. Three aspects of the Jewish identity. The Jews viewed themselves first as pupils of the law. They were pupils of the law. This is part of what it meant to be Jewish. Look at verse 17 again. Now, if you call yourself a Jew, which of course they did, and rely on the law and boast in God and know His will and approve the things that are superior, being instructed from the law. You're going to find as you study Romans that Paul loves him some run-on sentences. Use a period every now and then, Paul. But this is what he's saying. When you follow what he's saying, you get to the phrase, being instructed from the law. So the national Jewish identity was that they were people who relied on the law. They boasted in God. They were able to identify a way of life that was morally superior to the rest of the world. Why did they view themselves that way? That's a pretty lofty identity. Where does that come from? It says, because they are a people who are instructed from the law. They were students of the law, pupils of God's law. Secondly, the Jews viewed themselves as possessors of the truth. Pupils of the law and possessors of the truth. In the Jewish psyche, they thought the truth has been given to us by God and not to other people. Look at verse 20. It says, Paul says, having the embodiment of knowledge and truth in the law. What does that mean? The embodiment of knowledge and the truth. The word embodiment is the Greek word morphosis. It means the form or shape of something. So Paul says the Jews have the form or shape of knowledge and truth. What does that mean? Well, the idea here is that truth... You guys know this, I hope. It's a philosophical concept. So you can know the truth. You can discover the truth. You can talk about the truth. You can think about the truth. But for most people, the truth is not a physical object that you can possess. It's, it's sort of out here in the ether. It's an idea. It, it's a philosophical concept. You can possess it in the sense that you can know it, you can learn it, but it's immaterial unless you're a Jew. Unless you're a Jew, the nation of Israel had the embodiment, the form, the shape of the truth in the law. That's what Paul is saying. So Moses, when he came down off the mountain, God spoke to him. He told him the law and he gave it to him written on stone tablets. They had it, which is incredible. 
And this was a big part of what it meant to be Jewish. And notice, Paul is not saying they're wrong about any of this. He, he would wholeheartedly affirm these first two aspects of the Jewish identity. They were pupils of the law and possessors of the truth in a way that no other people in human history were. Thirdly, the Jews viewed themselves as privileged in the world. This is just the natural consequence of possessing the truth. He says in verse 19, And if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the ignorant, a teacher of the immature. So if you actually have the truth, you're learning the truth in a way that no other people in the world can because they don't even have it, well, then of course you're going to be a guide for the blind. Of course you're going to be a light in the darkness. Of course you're going to be instructors of the ignorant. Who else is going to teach people the truth if you have it and nobody else does? And again, notice Paul is affirming all three of these identities. He's not disagreeing with them. In many ways, he's making their case for them. They'd be nodding their heads wholeheartedly along with everything Paul's saying. Yes, amen, Paul. Pupils of the law, possessors of the truth, privileged teachers of the world. Absolutely. And right here, I want to stop for a second. And I want to point something out to all of us here this morning. So Paul, he is writing to people who identified as Jews, not just ethnically or culturally. But this is a group of people whose identity is wrapped up in being the people of God centered around the word of God. That's what this is all about. They, they viewed themselves as the people of God centered around the Word of God. And if you are someone here today who identifies as a Christian, then all three of these identities describe you as well. This is really important. It's not identical because we have the New Testament Scriptures, but I think that that means in some ways these things are even more true of us than they were of this original audience. If you're a Christian, you affirm the law of Moses. It's in our Bible. This is, we, we would affirm this is the inspired word of God, but we know the end of the story. We know that it all points to Jesus. It's fulfilled in Christ. We believe the scriptures are God's revealed truth about eternity and morality and him and us, and we can hold them in our hands. We possess the truth in the same way that God's people did 2,000 years ago, but we possess it with even greater clarity. And so if you are someone who calls yourself a Christian, then by definition, you are a student of God's Word. You can't even become a Christian unless you come in contact with the Gospel. <laughs> Sorry, there's, I don't know if you guys see it. There's a wasp. He's getting dangerously close. We've got to do something about these wasps. <laughs> But you're someone who uniquely possesses the truth if you're a Christian. You're somebody who has the ability and the responsibility to teach the world around you that truth from the Bible. And so if that's you, if you go to church, you listen to the Bible being taught, you read the words of the Bible, you sing the words of the Bible, you affirm the truth of the Bible, then what Paul is about to say should have you on the edge of your seat because, because he's talking to you. He's talking to us this morning. It applies just as much to us as it did to them. So what's he going to say? Here it is. He says, okay, you guys, Jews, pupils of the law, possessors of the truth, privileged teachers of the world. Let me ask you a question. It's all driving at a question. 
do you teach yourself? You're the teachers of the world. You're a guide to the blind, but you teach yourself, right? (laughs) Or no? See what he's doing? He's saying, are you buying what you're selling? If you're a Jew, if you're a Christian, do you hold yourself to the same standard that you hold others to so passionately? Brothers and sisters, God's word is asking you the same question. Do you teach yourself? I think Paul is describing here what many theologians would describe as a worldview. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase before. You won't find it in the Bible. But a worldview is it's a description of the way you view all of life. It is, it's like the lens that you filter the world and all of your experience and knowledge through. It's kind of like wearing glasses. If you, if you don't see very well, things are kind of fuzzy that are up close or maybe that are far away, and you put on a pair of glasses, and all of a sudden everything becomes clear. If you have the right prescription, it changes how you see. That's what a worldview does. It impacts how you view the world, and everyone has one. Everyone has a lens that they put on, and it either makes things more clear or it makes things more fuzzy. And if your lens is the Word of God, then you have clarity that nobody else has. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) You have clarity that nobody else has, and we believe that about the Bible. The Bible affirms that about itself. But here's what Paul's getting at. He's saying, where are you aiming your lens? Where are you aiming it? You see clearly all of the moral goodness and all of the moral badness in other cultures and in nations and in cities and in groups of people. You see it in politics. You see it in culture. You see it in your neighbors. You see it in your coworkers, your fellow church members even, your family members. It's good. You should be able to see that. It's part of why God has given you the truth in His Word. But when was the last time you pointed those lenses at yourself? That's the question. Do you bring the moral clarity of God's Word to bear on your own heart, on your own thought life, on your own decisions, on your own trajectory? That's the question. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says this, For the Word of God is living and effective and sharper than any double-edged sword penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from Him, but all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. So the author of Hebrews, he is describing the Bible. He's describing the Scriptures. And the law is certainly included in that. And he says it's like a sword. It can penetrate. It can separate surgically. This is part of what it does. And it's like eyes. It can see into your soul. It knows what's going on, what you're thinking, what you're feeling, what is driving you. And if you have the Bible and you know it and you understand it, then you have the ability to see and evaluate the world with greater clarity than somebody who doesn't. 
It's just a fact. Paul says you're able to approve the things that are superior. But let me ask you this. Whose thoughts and intentions are you supposed to evaluate? And it's not really you that's doing it. This is, this is part of God's grace to us in having the scriptures. But when you read Hebrews chapter 4, it's God through the Bible that is evaluating our thoughts and our motives. It is God that's penetrating and separating. And he does it as we read his word. But as you read the word of God, when you open the word of God, when you sit here and listen to the word of God being preached, whose thoughts and intentions does God intend to judge? It's yours. (laughs) It's you. I I can't count the number of times I've been sitting in church listening to somebody teach, and I think, oh, I I wish so-and-so was here right now. Have Have you ever thought that? man, this would be a really good sermon for so-and-so. And I'm not saying that that's always wrong, but man, God is trying to speak to me. God is trying to speak to you. It is your heart that God wants to penetrate when you read his word and hear it taught. You should apply it first to yourself, your thoughts, your motives, your desires, your loves, your intentions. Those ought to be the first thing you are filtering through the lens of God's word. Do you teach yourself? That's the question. Paul's rebuttal here started with the Jewish identity. It finishes with the Jewish vulnerability. So his point is that it's not enough to have the law. It's not enough to know the law. It's not enough to even be excited and enthusiastic about the law, boast in the law. You have to actually obey it. (laughs) You have to actually do it. And he outlines three fundamental ways that people, even Jews, break the law. And he does it through three rhetorical questions. First, he says you break the law behaviorally. In the most straightforward, condemning way possible. You just break it behaviorally. Verse 21, you who preach, you must not steal. Do you steal? That's a pretty straightforward diagnosis. If you steal, then you're a lawbreaker. You've broken the eighth commandment in Exodus chapter 20, but you're also a hypocrite. This is part of what's going on in the background here. You're also a hypocrite. You lack integrity. And this describes so many Christians. So many Christians. The evangelical world right now in our culture is totally up in arms about where things are going in terms of sexual immorality. And that's appropriate. I mean, we should be up in arms about the disintegration and the moral decay of our culture when it comes to human sexuality. But how many of those same Christians in secret regularly look at pornography? A lot. (laughs) A lot. If you look at the statistics, people who look at pornography, it's not a lot different between evangelical Christians and the rest of the culture. Or how many are cheating on their spouses? Or even just simply watching movies or TV that are highly sexualized, having just kind of a laissez-faire attitude about the, the media that people consume. They're just doing the behavior that they condemn. That's what Paul's saying. 
And he's pointing out, just because you know it's wrong and say it's wrong doesn't mean you don't do it. You're still vulnerable to law-breaking in your behavior. Secondly, you break the law internally. Romans 2.22. You who say you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? Paul appeals to the seventh commandment here, and certainly the first point also applies. Maybe you're actually physically committing adultery. But I don't think that's primarily what he has in mind because the Jews at this time in history, they were not a characteristically sexually immoral people. Overt adultery would have been universally condemned by Jewish people. It would have been very rarely practiced. And I think Paul may have in mind here the national adultery of Israel that's talked about in the Old Testament. If you read the prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah... They talk about how Israel is, is like the bride of God. God is their loving, heavenly husband, and instead of being faithful to Him, they prostitute themselves out to the foreign gods of the neighboring nations and cultures. And so this may be a reminder to them of that history. I think it's also plausible that Paul has the teaching of Jesus in mind here. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 27, Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, seventh commandment. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. All the way back in the Old Testament, book of 1 Samuel, the Word of God teaches us that man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. Sin begins in the heart. And so you might not go all the way to the external behavior, but you still have the same motive. You have the same desire. You have the same thought pattern. Jesus says in that same sermon that you might not have committed murder, but if you've gotten really angry with someone, I mean, where you're clenching your jaw and making a fist and you're just thinking, I am... <laughs> you ever get that angry where you don't even know what you think? You're just feeling raw emotion. You're so angry. Jesus says you've had the motive for murder. You've had the same desire that leads to murder, and God sees that sin in your heart. Just because you know it's wrong, you say it's wrong, doesn't mean you're not still vulnerable to that law-breaking in your heart. Thirdly, you break the law theologically. What does that mean? He says, you who detest idols, do you rob temples? There's a lot of debate in the commentaries about what it means to rob temples. And I'm going to just tell you what I think. I think it's fairly straightforward. I don't think I know exactly what Paul means, what he's referencing, but here's what I think the gist of it is. I think it's the same idea as the first two rhetorical questions. So he says, you condemn stealing. Good. That's great. Do you steal? You condemn adultery. Okay, good for you. Good job. Do you commit adultery? You detest idols. Good. Are you an idolater? That's the idea. I think this gets back to one of Paul's main points in chapter 1, that the root cause of unrighteousness is a failure to properly worship God. That's what it is. It's worshiping, serving something created rather than the Creator. So the idea of breaking the law theologically is that you have the wrong God. You're worshiping the wrong God. We studied this extensively in chapter 1. 
So you might not be stealing, you're not lusting, you're not hating, you're not envying, but if you love something more than God, even a good thing, and it takes His place in your heart, then you are a lawbreaker. If you're more committed to someone over God, you're replacing Him with something else, you are a lawbreaker. You can also sin, this is interesting, You can sin theologically by worshiping the right God in the wrong way. Maybe you have the right God, but if you worship Him in the wrong way, that's also law-breaking. Think about the story of the golden calf in the book of Exodus. I was studying this this week. In Exodus 32.5, so Moses goes up on the mountain. The people say, where's that Moses guy? We're going to die out here in the desert. We need God to save us. And so they get all their gold jewelry and they melt it down and they fashion a golden calf, a statue. They literally make it in real time. And then they start to worship it. And in Exodus 32, 5, it says, When Aaron saw the calf, he built an altar in front of it and made an announcement. So now Aaron, he's the spokesperson. Moses is the leader. Moses is not there. So Aaron's second in charge. He makes an announcement to all the people. There will be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. What? You see that? Have you ever noticed that? So they intended to worship Yahweh, God, by making sacrifices to a golden statue. And this is what many, many people do. They approach the true God of the Bible in ways that subtly refashion Him according to their own desires and their own priorities. And they dress up their life with Christian activity and language, but their heart is totally devoted to something else. Paul puts an exclamation point on his rebuttal with this statement. Verse 23, You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. When people who have God's word and have God's presence and God's leading and God's wisdom, when they reject him, it does incredible harm to the world. It does incredible harm to the world. God is not glorified or honored. God is not imaged properly. It's the opposite. The truth is suppressed. That's what Paul says in Romans 1. God is dishonored. God's glory is marred and hidden through those people. Why? Well, it's because the watching world intuitively understands what Paul said back in verse 13. Verse 13 of Romans chapter 2 says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. It's intuitive. (laughs) Are you buying what you're selling? And here's what this means for us. Having the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Knowing the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Memorizing the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Singing the words of the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. According to Paul, obeying the Bible in faith, that is the external external marker of a true Christian. Obeying the Bible in faith is the external marker of a true Christian. Notice I didn't say obeying the Bible 
makes you a Christian. It doesn't. But it is the natural byproduct of being a Christian, of being saved and born again. Paul's not talking about perfect obedience here. That's not what he's talking about. He doesn't say it is the doers of the law who will be justified because they've done the law. He does say it is the doers of the law who will be justified, but not because they've done the law, but because of Christ. This is what he's going to get into in chapter 3 and 4. They will be justified because of Christ, which transforms them into doers of the law. He is talking about a heart posture. Skip ahead to next week's text in verse 28. He says, For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, and true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart by the Spirit, not the letter. How do you know if invisible, inward faith and trust in God exist in someone's heart? It is shown through a posture of faith-filled obedience. That's his point. And this is exactly what Jesus taught all over the place. I'll give you just a couple examples. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who will? But the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. In verse 24, Jesus says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. The person who obeys, not just a hearer only, but a doer, he will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. In John 13, verse 12, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. In verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Faith and works are only in opposition when it comes to justification. So what saves you? What earns righteousness for you? It cannot be works. I want to be really clear about this. It can't be works. If you could save yourself by obeying, then Jesus never needed to come. He didn't need to come. We don't need good news. The good news is you have the law, do the law. Good luck to you. You can't save yourself that way. It's not possible. And the reason is because of God's standard. God's standard is moral perfection. That is the standard for heaven, and nobody can meet it. That's why we need to be saved by God. This is why Jesus came. Jesus utterly fulfilled the law, every bit of it. He was a perfect man totally sinless, totally righteous, perfect obedience, in perfect faith, his whole life as a human being. And the only reason he was able to do that is because he is the eternal Son of God. And so when Jesus was punished for sin, whose sin was he punished for? Because he didn't have any sin. He was punished for your sin. He was a substitutionary sacrifice. That the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus. It was saying, look at what God's going to do for you. That's why Jesus went there. That's why he bled. That's why he died, to take your punishment. You can't save yourself. You need to receive God's gift of merciful grace offered to you in 
Jesus Christ. That's your only hope for justification. That's your only hope to be forgiven and made pure and righteous. But apart from justification, that's how a person becomes a Christian. That's how you're saved. That's how you go to heaven. Apart from justification, faith and works are not in opposition. People think, oh man, we don't want to get into works because then we're going to be preaching a false gospel. This is what the Jews did. This is what Paul is railing against constantly in the book of Galatians, for example. He talks about it all over the place in the book of Romans. You can't save yourself. Don't try to save yourself through works. And so we think, okay, works are bad. Works are not bad. Apart from justification, faith and works are not in opposition. In fact, they always go together in the Bible. Always. Inward faith is demonstrated by outward obedience. This is the way it works. Inward faith in Christ is demonstrated by outward obedience. So one point of application just to close. Here it is. Teach yourself the gospel. You say, I've been a Christian for 30 years. Teach yourself the gospel. Teach yourself the gospel. Verse 23 says this, You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? In Galatians 6.14, different letter, same author. Paul says this, But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world. For both circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. Don't boast in your Christian morality. Don't boast that you know the truth, you have the right worldview. Don't boast in the strength of your integrity, the strength of your relationships in the church. Or the fact that you have a strong Christian family, strong Christian friendships, those are wonderful gifts from God. We should be, we should be overflowing with gratitude. If, if those things are true of you, you should be thrilled. You should be so grateful to God. You should celebrate. You should thank Him. But the only reason any of that is possible is because of Christ. It's because of what God has already done in you. If you love goodness and righteousness that you see in God's Word, it's because God has transformed you from the inside out already. You didn't do that. God did that to you and for you. He's given you a new nature in Christ. He's given you His Spirit. He's given you new values and new motives. And so your soul needs a daily reminder of that. Every day. Apart from taking the lens of God's Word and aiming it at your own heart and your own mind and and filtering your thought life, what did I think about today? God, was that pleasing to you? Did I walk in faith today? Did I worship, really worship for one minute today even? (laughs) Sometimes I think about, I almost am scared to say this, but sometimes I think, what percentage of the time is my heart really, truly worshiping God? And I think it's probably abysmally low. Really. That you're really dialed in and you're, you're, so f- you're, you're just focused on serving Him and loving Him and acknowledging Him in all you do in the way that we ought to. Your soul needs a daily reminder. And so apart from taking God's Word and aiming it at yourself, you will wander. 
You will. You will begin to just rely on your own strength. You will begin to believe your own hype, and then you will fail to obey. You just will. You cannot maintain a heart posture of obedience apart from faith. So teach yourself the gospel. Get in the book every day, brothers and sisters. Preach it to yourself. Pray through these truths. Get excited about what God has done for you every single day. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you that you've saved us. God, please help us to remember what you've saved us out of. Please help us not to have this identity that we are somehow better than other people. God, we are privileged. We do possess the truth. We are pupils of the Scriptures, and that is amazing, but it's all a gift. It's all because of your grace. Apart from Christ, we're in the exact same situation as the culture around us. So God, I pray that you'd help us to cling to those truths. God, help us to bathe and wash our souls in the truth of the gospel every day. Lord, I pray that we would fall more in love with you, that we would worship you more wholeheartedly every day, that our faith, it'd be strengthened. It'd be tested. It'd be found genuine over time. God, help us to be a church that obeys in faith because we love you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.